0: Hey fellow tennis nerds, I hope all is well. Today I have a distinguished guest in Maike Babel. She is a former pro, uh, played really high level, grand slams, you name it, won some ITF titles. But she's also now a content creator and a fa- pretty famous coach. So maybe you've seen her stuff if you're listening to this already. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Maike.
1: Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit looking forward. We've been trying to get this set up, but with time zones and everything, it's not that easy. Uh, how busy yeah, are you? On, how many hours are you on the court? kind of?
1: Uh, I mean, today it was just three and I'm actually trying to get off the court a little bit more um, and spend more time on the online side of things. So that's, that's the most I can do these days because I'm <clears throat> getting a little older. So trying to get off the court a little bit more.
0: Yeah. How many hours? Like you're doing 30 or, or 20 or how Good much? God,
1: no, no. no I'm, I'm at 15 now, 15, 16, 17. Um, and that's, that's all about that I want to do.
0: Because I talked to a Tennis House, I think yesterday or two days ago, and and he was still like thirty hours, which sounded a lot to me.
1: And and he's in Louisiana, and yeah. that's I mean the humidity. At least here it's dry, but it's also super hot. And yeah, I I yeah, not for me anymore. I've done it long enough. I'm I'm good now.
0: How's your How's your body feeling? It's holding up? Or you have injuries lingering?
1: Um. Well, the, the shoulder has always been my problem. I mean, that was the, the reason really why I had to retire. But now it's like every now and then I'm struggling with tennis ar- elbow and just, yeah, physically. Uh, I, in the beginning of the summer, I did camp uh, for three weeks, but only three hours in the morning. But then on top of everything else, and I was still, I mean, by the end of the day, completely useless and just like, ah, oh, dead. So, yeah, no more than 15. I'm good.
0: I think that's a sensible approach. I think it shows maturity that you actually decide, okay, my body cannot take. I mean, you had a, a successful and pretty long pro career. Uh, do you ever miss like competitive aspects of it? Like you would like want to go out and compete?
1: Not really, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's literally where now I am just like, oh, I used to be able to do this shot or, you know, and now I'm not anymore. But the, the weird thing is I never was as competitive as you would think you need to be to, to play world-class tennis. But uh, yeah, I definitely don't miss it. Um, now, if I want to do something physically, I'll go hiking or do something, but I really don't even hit for myself. Also because if I were to serve, then my shoulder kind of falls off after you know half an hour. Or so I'm good, not that competitive anymore.
0: No, that's interesting because I always find that competitive aspect, like some people have it in spades and some people struggle with it, although they can still play excellent tennis, you know, but it's like when it comes to competition aspect, how did that kind of your personality, you know, not being matching perfect with tennis, how did that feature in your career?
1: I think there were definitely times when I should have pushed myself more and just didn't know where to get that extra energy from because yeah I mean was I driven absolutely but that last little uh, yeah that last little bit sometimes was missing whether it was like oh am I gonna you know put another 10 minutes in, in in practice when you're already about dead uh or on court in matches when things didn't go my way necessarily like working through adversity I think I I definitely had missed opportunities on that. And, and I recognized that back then, but I didn't know how to deal with it necessarily. I think throughout my career, my career at the end, I got better with it and I had learned more about myself and about how to, how to deal with that. But um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had absolutely, you know, fanatics basically in, in my peer group and I wasn't up there with them in, in that kind of competitiveness.
0: Do you think you need to be a fanatic? I mean, these days it seems like it's even more competitive than I've ever was before. Like, do you think you need to be completely fanatic to be successful on on ATP and WTA level?
1: I, I mean, I always kind of jokingly said, you know, you have to have a screw loose a little bit to play professional tennis because it's such a weird lifestyle and it's you're doing so many weird things at a very young age. On, yeah, I think you have to be a little fanatical. I mean, you you definitely have to. Uh, know that for a very short period of time even if we measure it in decades well I mean look at Venus Williams now like three decades on court so it's not that short but that's not really the lifespan of a uh, a regular career but you have like your six seven eight years it's got to be all in it's got to be all tennis or yeah I mean you might as well not even try
0: yeah, I think that's uh, that's the perspective you have to have. When do you work with any kind of competitive players, or you mainly work with intermediates and, and club levels? Well, what's your um, your coaching schedule like?
1: I'm, I mean, now uh, first when I moved to the uh, U.S., I, I coached collegiate, and that was a very high level. Um, but I just didn't want to travel anymore either. That was one of the things. Uh, you do that enough when you play pro. And then in Atlanta, I played with some higher level and worked with some higher level juniors. But now it's mostly really recreational players. Um, I have one or two juniors that are now actually in, in college. Uh, but I on court, I don't work with, with high performance players a whole lot anymore because I also feel that I, unless I have a hitting partner, um, I think there are better options for them and and denver is not necessarily the absolute hotbed of of tennis uh which is fine because i i enjoy working with with players who want to get better and i don't really care what the level is as long as they're really into it and most everybody that i have is and i really appreciate that and you don't necessarily have the crazy parents factor
0: no i i know i we i've talked about about that a lot with with other coaches online coaches and stuff like the the parent factor is such a big thing in, in tennis, especially when you have kids that you know they believe can be uh, the next big thing. Sometimes erroneously, yeah. you do, you would say, or it becomes like a big block in the whole process of, of the the child. Uh, so you yes, made, did agree. you make like a pretty clear decision early that you don't want to work with that kind of energy?
1: Yeah, I, I do have to admit because it it just takes on too much time, and and I don't mind uh, you know when it's reasonable and when it's relevant and when it's respectful also, but I've had too many people tell me how to do my job, and I, I take intake, of course, I take feedback, of course, but you know, if somebody wants to be on court all the time and tells me how to run a practice, and like, why are you paying me money? It's like, if you think you know it better, then, then you do it yourself. Um, and it, it just took up too much energy and too much uh, effort, to be honest, and time, and that took the fun out of coaching. Um, and the the one kid that I you know worked with from age goodness like thirteen on, and she's now playing Division three. Uh, her parents were amazing. I mean, they bit, literally basically dropped her off and picked her up. And you know, when there were questions, they were open to you know discussions and or helping me out also how she had played at tournaments and stuff. But it was it was really really fun and. That's why I was the only person I really coached <laughs> for a longer time.
0: But I think it's it's makes makes sense to be selective. Like I think some people yeah. can't be selective, but if you have the luxury to be a bit selective, I think it yeah. also makes you smile more in your work. You know.
1: Yeah, and I I I noticed that the times when I was forced to work with uh, players and and some of the kids were also, you know, the I think the attitude was not really where it needed to be. Um, and then it takes the fun out of it. And, and as you said, I am very, very privileged in that, that I can choose who I work with. Um, I had some qualms in the beginning to literally say no, because as all coaches know, you know, it's another hundred bucks for another hour or whatever people charge. And it can be fairly easy money. But at the end, it's not that easy if you are after three hours, you know, after those people left, you're still kind of upset and angry and Yeah, doing all kinds of things that you don't want to be doing anymore.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that. I can imagine that. And You said that Denver is not uh, really a hotbed of tennis. I think it's mainly like, you know, Florida, California, that seems to be like uh, key states in the U.S. Uh, How did you end up in Denver then? Like from Germany to Denver, how was your kind of that transition?
1: Uh, There were a lot of in between. So I I did leave Germany in in 2000, actually, and I was in um, New Orleans for three years. And I went to school there. I got my degree first at Tulane and then I transferred to uh, Vanderbilt in in Nashville and then I spent about eight uh, years in uh, Atlanta and then I moved to here to Denver Um, in 2016. My aunt used to live here and I was just like so blown away by just the you know the environment here everybody's very active, uh, hiking, skiing, biking, walking, everything um, and I was a little done also with the climate in, in the South because it's just killing. Speaking about doing 30 hours, so how Davor does it, I have no idea. Um, so yeah, that that was kind of like the roundabout way. And it was already starting to be a little bit more traditional. I want to have a little bit more uh, life balance, kind of life-work balance. So yeah, a very roundabout uh, kind of way to to land somewhere.
0: Yeah, well, that's life, I guess, like for everyone. You you end yeah. up in places you never imagined yourself being. You know? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I guess since you're mentioning hiking and stuff, that's a, a passion of yours to be, be in the great outdoors besides being on a court all day?
1: Uh, I, if I do anything physical, I mean, when I was still teaching like 30, 35 hours or something, I was just happy to park my behind on the couch in the AC. Um, but now that I have a little bit more energy also to do that, yeah, I mean, hiking is absolutely like... I mean, it's just amazing here and there's, there's so much to do. And I mean, you can, I think, spend a whole, I think a lifetime almost here in Colorado and you never have to go to the same trail twice. It's just absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah. I can imagine that. So, I mean, you, you have the the hiking part, but you're also now having an an online presence, right? So you're on YouTube, Instagram, uh, do you do your own editing or is that something you, you kind of give to other people?
1: I do all of it myself because I feel, I mean, I would love to, uh, if I uh, can be honest, I would love to maybe find somebody to edit, um, but I've, I've tried it once or twice. And by the time that I, I get, you know, to where I like it and where I'm okay with it, I have to write so many instructions that I might as well do it myself. Um, and I, I did teach myself. And that's one of the things that I, that I like uh, doing. I like to learn and kind of challenge myself that way a little bit. So it's actually fun, but it could, I mean, it's getting into where it takes a lot of time. And that's, that's also one of the reasons why I want to transition off the court a little bit um, because it's, it's taken more time, but it's, it's starting to be profitable. And yeah, I think it's a good time to, to make that transition.
0: You seem to really enjoy it. You create some really good content. Have there Thank been you- any challenges besides learning how to edit in like being in the online world compared to just coaching traditionally?
1: You have to deal with a whole lot of people who don't know what they're talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know that <laughs>
1: I mean if you if you read some of the comments, you're going like Did you watch my video? Did did you what what are you talking about?
0: Sometimes Um, not, (laughs) probably. That's how it is for me, at least. (laughs) Yes.
1: And, and, uh, you know, when they're making one categorical sweep about something, um, I think being, for the most part, I mean, there's a couple of women. It always feels like the regular stuff. You always have to do everything twice as well because you have to set yourself apart. And I'm very happy and very, very uh, lucky I guess that I can immediately say like hey I was a top 30 player so I guess that gives me some kind of credibility right off but you'd have to back that up you can't just waltz in there like a lot of players do and this is more in the coaching like oh I used to be a good player doesn't necessarily make you a good coach um, and I think just the the transition that you're you're not right there to correct somebody so you have to find uh ways and different ways, maybe from when you would teach a lesson in person to find that in an online space. Like, how do I explain that if I'm not right there? How can I break it down into manageable steps? Um, but it's, it's fine. I like doing it and it's, it's something new. Um, and I do get to, to coach people that otherwise I would not ever meet. Because I'm also doing online coaching, like the you know stroke analyses, match analyses, or you know tennis consultation. I also do mental skills training, and you have a reach that is past anything you could possibly have in a live setting, unless your name is Bollettieri or Macy or whatever, or Maritoglu, whoever it is these days.
0: Yeah, exactly. Big, uh, usually, that big names for- it creates yeah. like a huge team behind them, right? Uh, Nobody, yeah. like you mentioned like, you know that you could do online consulting and stuff like that. Do you feel like you can learn as well being online, or at least maybe 80, 75 percent as you are when you're face to face with you on the court, actually playing?
1: Um, I think it depends really on the learning style. It really depends on the person. I mean, for some people, I would reckon it is absolutely not suitable. Um, I think you have to make sure that you speak literally the same language, because language barriers can be a lot bigger, um, at least when you're on court, you can still show, uh, but I, I've had really great experiences w- with it uh, for the people that it's right for, I mean, for people that are very visual learners, um, that can you know, go out then and, and practice and experiment with it and then come back. but. Yeah, I I think it's an absolute legitimate way of of coaching, which I didn't necessarily would have thought 15, 20 years ago. But I think also now with technology so much more evolved, it's, yeah, why not?
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think whatever you can get from something... I mean, if you can't go to someone, it's it's much better to do it online. Even if it doesn't give you 100% the same result, yeah. it might give you a high percentage and it's much worth and more than than nothing, right? So it yeah. uh, makes sense. And also something I, I usually tell people is like, you should record yourself as well because yes. if yes, they yes. need to send you stuff, like sometimes I get videos as well, it's, it's much easier when you actually have people recording themselves regularly. They're, they're in that loop yeah. already.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, if I'm going back to, uh, you know, when I played, like filming yourself, you had to have like a camera that was, you know, like what you now see on TV crews, and it was still the VHS, and it was expensive and impossible. So that's, I think, how we uh, also kind of grew up making it a big deal. But now, I mean, it's ridiculous what you can do with a phone. And so to me, that's a fantastic way of learning.
0: 100%. Do you see some issues pop up over and over again with like club level players that you coach or, or juniors, whatever, like that same thing is, is more the most common problem or thing or misunderstanding?
1: Yeah, I think um, uh, a lot is on the forehand with the with the lag and the snap and that's when I start being very unhappy because there is no snap and the absolute, <sighs> yeah, how can I say that so you don't have to edit it out. Uh, discussion That's fine. about yeah, don't ATP. worry about it. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: the the <laughs> stupid discussion about the ATP and WTA forehand and it's yeah. If you're at higher Division One level, we might get into a territory where something change. I mean, a change there is beneficial. But if you're a rec player and you're getting into your contact properly, it's like yeah, do a freaking cartwheel before you make contact. It doesn't matter. Um, I think serving the loading is very misunderstood. There's still, I think the serve is where the most myth have survived. And I think that's what I'm getting a lot that people say, oh, but I heard you should push the left hip over the baseline. Or it's like a a pitch or what's the other one? Um, yeah, that's about the, the, the two that are the worst. Um, and you constantly have to, repeat that and there is actually one online coach now who's very very famous who propagates that and of course he's got the credibility of having coached you know several number one players in the world so you would think he knows what he's talking about and then you talk to like some biomechanics uh, people experts and they all go no 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 no. So that's, that's what you kind of have to fight against a little bit. But I think it's, it's really the forehand is one thing in the serve. And that's what everybody wants to work on, or mostly. It's, I, when I do uh, stroke analyses, it's mostly forehands and serves. It's hardly ever a volley. Um, backhands, maybe some, but not a whole lot.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes there's an issue with uh, people wanting to work on the sexiest strokes, you know, or something. Like, it's not, they might have the biggest flaw in their footwork, And footwork is not sexy, it's super boring, let's say, you know, but it could make the biggest impact on their game overall, but it's not like you want to have, you know, most people seem obsessed with making like, you know, one plus one combinations or like a big serve and then they hit like an Alcaraz forehand winner, which few will do (laughs) over and over again. Yeah,
1: they do that maybe one out of 800 times. And, and that's something that you can tell your grandchildren about. That's great. But the 799 times that lose you the rest of the match, you know, you don't want to uh, do that. But I, I mean, I know that for myself that I, I was more prone to to work on the things that I was already good at, that I was confident at. Um, but I was smart enough that I also worked on the things that that were not sexy, as you say. And I absolutely agree with you. That's that's what everybody wants to do.
0: Yeah, it's almost like tennis has some kind of macho aspect to it. Like it's like you need to hit winners, and if you're not hitting winners, yeah. it's not like that's not cool, you know. You at yeah. least you see that on some levels, you know, and then what wins you matches is the consistency, which is yeah. not the sexiest either right?
1: And I mean if you break it down, if you were to look at somebody like uh let's take a Djokovic, I mean he never misses. And if we go by the definition, somebody never misses, that makes him a pusher. No, he's just consistent. I mean, he just, you know, sets up, sets up his strengths. And of course he can put everything away then. But he's also not going to go and try to slap winners from 18 feet behind the baseline. Um, I remember when I played, people were talking about Arancha Sanchez-Vicario as being a pusher. And I was like, have you ever hit with her? It's like she has so much rotation on the ball. Like every ball is up here. She's not a pusher. She just never, never misses and then sets up her strengths. So I think also with, you know, having more access to a lot of video and a lot of tennis on TV, that's what everybody sees, right? And you hear the commentary, oh, big serve plus one. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, I can't do that. My serve is nothing, you know, spectacular. So for me to work a whole lot on serve plus one with a big serve, wouldn't make any sense. I have to work with my serve as a very placed ball. And then maybe I have a plus one, plus two, plus three, four, five. Yeah, but you got to know what you, what you can and cannot do.
0: Yeah, I think that's very... I mean, self-awareness in life in general, but also on the tennis court makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think sometimes, it's my opinion at least, that the TV angle sometimes hurt players because, or people watching, you know, we want to learn tennis because it's always that same bird's eye view. And you yeah. don't see how much spin like Arantxa Sanchez Vicaro puts on the ball, or or kind yeah. of like how deep all oh, Djokovic shots are. Because sometimes the commentators don't even mention it, but that's the key fact. Like he makes every ball yeah. for you uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable hitting every shot. You know, so it's a different yeah. game, right, for Elopay?
1: Yeah, it's like I mean, basically like trying to hit or do a dunk if you can't even do a layup. I hope that was a good analogy.
0: I think it was a good analogy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> With other sports. So, yeah, it's like first do the basics. And I think that was something that, that I was very fortunate uh, with that my coaches really instilled that. And mostly it was really good fundamental technique. And then you can, you know, start to, to use, then you can pretty much do anything, right? If you have really good technique and you got the patience and you got the uh, endurance and stamina and whatever. But, yeah, you got to build the point.
0: When you traveled on the tour, like I mean nowadays the teams are so big. Like they have like you know physio, they have a food you know nutritionist, yeah. they have everything. I mean, Djokovic probably has like a cryo chamber in that, in a car somewhere yeah. outside. Uh, <laughs> how, was, how was life when you played on the tour? It was quite different, no?
1: It was uh, yeah, I think and I think with the teams that's also now only the top 20 or maybe 30. But yeah, that was not the 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 norm back then, and I do remember that I think Steffi was the first one who actually traveled with a with a physiotherapist, um, and I know that uh, Jana Novotna was the first one, or not the first one, but one of the very very few uh, to hit with a uh, to travel with a hitting partner. So she had a coach and a hitting partner, and I mean me, it was I had a coach. Um, but also, a lot of times, not even that, and I traveled with my brother or a friend who could play tennis, yes, but certainly had zero qualifications to be a coach on tour and it was very um, primitive, shall I say i mean you you had to combine you had to be your own physiotherapist, you had to be your own trainer, you had to uh, you know have your coach, and he had to be the coach, the hitting partner the psychologist or that wasn't even a thing back then so it it was very rudimentary should i say and now in hindsight i'm going like (laughs) wow uh but that 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 was just the best you could do or i could do with what i had and it comes down to finances absolutely
0: yeah, tennis is a tough sport on the finances and i, I mean yeah. like like you said this this is mainly like the top 10 20 30 players maybe can afford this huge team otherwise you see you know some guys in top 100 even travel lives I mean, most of them have one coach but when i'm around atp or wta tournaments it's they usually have one coach but they don't have more than that like that's not yeah. uh, so easy and that's i mean obviously the cost and expand if you're gonna have a team of five uh entourage yeah. you know yeah
1: yeah, but it's, now it's a little bit uh, better. Also, I talked to um, a guy who ran the tournament in, in Karlsruhe, who used to be um, our Federation Cup uh, team captain, and the things that the WTA now requires you to have to be able to put on a tournament, like you have to have a uh, dedicated warm-up section and you have to have so many bikes and so many... Physiotherapists have to be there. There has to be a, a doctor on call all the time, and uh, there has to be whatever it is. So that also has gotten a lot more professional. Um, and I think the the WTA, the trainers there, do a check in every year, um, and they kind of you know give you training regimes for, especially the younger players that can't um, afford all that stuff. And didn't exist when i played i was like oh go run a couple of laps around the you know the park that's your conditioning
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can imagine that like yeah i've been um there's a there's a german tennis school in uh in marbella where i where i live i mean it's quite far from where i live but it's like 20 minutes or something and uh, he he, i think he used to coach Steffi graf he was the national team uh, Hofsess, right Um, yeah yeah and and we have you, you see old pictures. You see like it, it. You have the feeling of like you know me growing up in the eighties as well. It's like you things yeah. were very different. Like in terms, especially like nutrition, training, and yeah. what you did to yourself. Like how how was like like how did you handle food when you were playing? Like it was it like so stringent as it is today?
1: Um, there certainly wasn't the information out there. Um, you know, it was all the do the carbohydrate. You know, the loading <laughs> with like the fifteen pounds of spaghetti and tomato sauce. Um, that was definitely one thing. But even if you had um, the the information, it was, t- I mean, sometimes really tough to actually follow that when you were traveling. Because you stay in a hotel, you can't, you know, fix your own food, you can't cook. Um, I did try a lot of times to stay, you know, in places that had kitchens, um, you know, rent a house. But again, super expensive, maybe a a Grand Slam or something. You could split it with a couple of people, Um, but you depended on whatever kind of restaurants were around. And of course, the higher the tournaments were, uh, the better, you know, the the catering was and the food was and also a little smarter. Um, But you go to, I mean, the 25s and the 10Ks or whatever, especially like here in America, they go like, okay, yeah, there's the, the McDonald's and the whatever over there. And you just have to make do with, with what you had.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you need to kind of like you need to get through those stages. Like I have friends who are in the stages right now, so it's yeah. like McDonald's or something because they can't afford more than that. And the hotel room is like pretty bad, technically yeah. speaking. It's not going to be like a nice night if you're sleeping oh, with God, party people in the you know room next door, or you're sharing a room yeah. even. So that that's not so glamorous as uh, some of yeah. the no, you know as, top as pros.
1: Netflix, as Netflix will have you believe. Um, I think that's also why I haven't really watched it yet. I've seen a couple of bits and pieces, but of course, everybody gets the wrong idea. Uh, you know, when they see everybody driving around in a Ferrari and, you know, being escorted, you know, by 500 fans and they have their private jets or whatever. And it's like, yeah, no, that's that's not really what it's like. 30, top 40. Is my- I mean, on the men's side, you know, we have the uneven the inequality in prize money that a top one hundred or eighty guy can make a really good living on the women's side. Top eighty is not gonna is not gonna do it.
0: Yeah, people don't really know that. I mean, like you have some, the Grand Slams now have like equal prize money, but then you had like yeah. a, this tournament in. I, I think it was Washington. I'm not one hundred percent sure, but it's like the 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 field on the women's side was much stronger. If you look at the rankings, it was like really tough. And then the field on the men's side was pretty mushy, mushy, you know. Yeah. And uh, still, the men's had like a double price pool, you know, so that, that yeah. was a little bit, felt a bit strange. And it was also like brought up online, I think a few times, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's how it's been. And it, it, it I think on the women's tour also, um, the men had that at much, uh, lower stages that hospitality was provided. Um, that was, I mean, very few tournaments did that. And now, of course, I mean, the prize money in the first round, I remember that um, going to Australia, I think it was first round. If you got just to to participate, you got 14,000 Australian dollars, but you had your coach, uh, you had your own, you know, travel to take care of. I mean, you're traveling halfway around the world. The 14,000 dollars was chewed up immediately. You hadn't even set foot in in the country. Now, I think it's like 40,000. So if you're now getting into uh you know all the the uh tier 1000s yeah you you're coming ahead uh, um at the end of the year but yeah if you have to play the smaller tournaments yeah it's very 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 unequal still or unequal
0: yeah for you how how was dealing with all the traveling was it something you liked or was it something that you know was was tough to deal with <laughs>
1: I'm very much a homebody. I mean, I'm very much uh, and I was very fortunate that in my hometown when when I grew up, there were really, really good players. So I was able to train very long in, in Frankfurt. I mean, there were really good players um, and decent coaching. Uh, so I didn't have to go anywhere to live there. Like Medvedev, Medvedev had to move to Spain or uh, or France or wherever he went. And you know what so many players are doing now. But the, the travel was absolutely my least favorite part. Uh, because especially if you're, again, if you're not, you know, one of the top players. I mean, you're flying, what did they do? Like three times around the globe per year or whatever it is. And you're back in coach. Like when you go from Germany to Australia, two times ten hours, and uh, yeah, it, it was it was not fun. And you stay in hotels that are not necessary. I mean, at the, again, lower levels of the beginning of my career, uh, you know, that were a little better than than hostels, maybe. Uh, so yeah, that that definitely was not my favorite. And everybody goes like, Oh my God, you were in so many places. Like, yeah, I saw the airport. I saw the tennis facility and I saw the hotel. That's pretty much all you do.
0: Yeah. I have friends uh, used to play pretty high level ATP and they say like the traveling without ever actually traveling was the big pain, right? Because you're you're actually in a place that could be very interesting, but there's no time and uh, you know, so you're just playing, it's just all about the tournament, you know, and so that's, that's not really traveling. The way you you see traveling from a normal person right
1: yeah and it's it's you're a business person i mean it's like think about any person who has a job where they have to go to conferences constantly and they're not staying around you know half a day to do sightseeing or whatever um and i always when i was done with the the blocks of tournaments i wanted to get the heck out of there and go home and hang out with my friends and not deal with tennis anymore as much
0: yeah, I think it's also that part of, like, people don't realize, like, you're a small business owner, so you're like you're yeah. the CEO of your own little venture, and also expenses are dealt by you, you know, and I mean, you can have a money yeah. team as well if you're, you're, you're a big shot, but generally, yeah. like, you have to pay taxes for prize money and stuff like that. How, how did you deal with that? That must have been a tough one.
1: Um, I was very fortunate that at the very beginning, um, we actually found a private sponsor um, that allowed me to not necessarily think about it as much, but you still did a lot because even that didn't cover everything. I did have support from the uh state federation to an extent, so I was really fortunate that way. Uh but yeah, as you said, you have your own kind of little company. So you're I had yeah, I had help with, you know, from a tax expert, but I had to deal with that, right? I had to, you know, get all my documents in a row and Uh, You have to figure out some immigration things if you needed a visa or something. Of course, that is all taken care of by, you know, the big shots at IMG or, you know, whoever your agent is. And they they deal with all of that. But yeah, if you were at the level that I was, you had to do everything. I had to organize my own practice. I had to find my own practice partners, um, find my own coach when I, you know, was switching or whatever it was. Uh, it's all on you. And you start doing that fairly, I mean, soon, like fairly early on. I was 16 when I turned pro. So I always kind of kid a little bit when I say like, yeah, I had my first career when I was 16. And by then, whatever, 26 or, you know, now maybe even 45 or whatever, I'll start a new career with the online stuff. But yeah, and those those can be absolutely uh, distracting things too because you'd rather want to spend time on the practice court or in the gym or whatever, and then it's like, oh no, you got the tax meeting.
0: <laughs> and how, how did you deal with the pressure? I mean, it must be a lot of pressure to be, you know, a young professional tennis player, because you have your own pressure, potentially you have pressure from, for, from parents, I don't know your situation, or, you know, your sponsor, there's always a lot of pressure and a lot of yeah. things for a young person to deal with.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, my parents were were great. I mean, my dad was uh, my coach when I started, which that's not necessarily, that wasn't the best dynamic, but they never made me play. Like they never forced me to play. There was never any pressure. Um, I think my mom actually told me like a couple of years ago, you know, she wished that I had not turned pro because she saw how tough the life is and how miserable sometimes I was. I mean, you're so young and you're being thrown into these situations that usually uh like it's your life i mean this is your livelihood and you're 16 17 where usually you're still allowed to be super dumb (laughs) you know normal people maybe face that stuff the type of decisions that you have to make when they're i don't know 25 Mm -hmm. maybe not even then uh and it's most, I mean, I think I can speak for everybody that I talked to all my peers that after we were all done, we were all saying the same things for the most part. It was mostly our own pressure because you, you put all your eggs in one basket. Like you quit school. I quit school. I got out of school after 10th grade. Um, yes, I continued kind of what back then was homeschooling. I guess now it's called online school. But that's, that was it. Like when other people are still kind of figuring out what they're going to do with with their lives, you're boom, you got to do this. Um, And and you've done this for so long already. Like, I mean, I started, I I was a late bloomer. So I wasn't even like as good in tennis and as involved with tennis as some other players. Uh, They were like, I don't know if you remember Uncle Huber.
0: Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah,
1: she was, she was my, I mean, we're the same age and uh, she already won the german championships and went to all the junior grand slams when she was 12 13 so she had already done all this for like four or five years and i only started to really get quite good when i was 14 15 so i was a little later but that's all you know and then if that doesn't work out what does that say about you i mean what you think what will it say about you as a person doesn't say nothing you know, if you're not making it as a pro, you're still an okay person for the most part. Unless, you know, whatever, you're an idiot. Uh but it's 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 so soaked up in into your identity, basically, that that's where the pressure comes from. I mean for most everybody it was themselves. Yes, some had absolutely nutty parents. Um but for the most part it's all it was all us.
0: Yeah, I know also like that thing where you don't have any backup plan. Like you sometimes yeah. you know, going to i talked that about i talked about that with other coaches like going to u.s college for example tennis college it's a great yeah. idea big thumbs up i i you know would like to hear your opinion there as well but it's like that at least gives you an education and then you can go pro which some do yeah. and, and successfully yeah. so right but if you're going from you know i'm a child and now i'm only i only know tennis it's like you're yeah. raised in a bubble you, you have this bubble life and you don't know anything outside it and if it doesn't go as planned you're, you're you're you know what do you do? Who are you? You know.
1: You can still become a tennis coach. Yay! This is true. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, coaching. No, I I think that was that's absolutely right. The problem with with me was at that time, um, people told me I was too old to turn pro when I was sixteen.
0: Um, Very old. That's
1: super old. I mean, Anka was already. I think. Top 50, I want to say, when she turned 17. So, you know, you have her and then you had Steffi, of course, who was top 50 when she was 13, uh, then Jennifer Capriati was at th- So all these like absolute phenomenally anomaly. I mean, just like, that's not normal. No. Uh, but people thought like, oh, you have to like turn pro when you're 14. So I had that going. Thankfully that has now kind of changed a little bit. Um, the age restrictions are a lot. Uh, I think they changed that also to kind of push, uh, players, uh, to start a little later, but yeah, I had already left school. Um, and I didn't know anything about college, but if, uh, when I then, you know, or when you now look at the, who were my peers in the U S here, they had all played college, every single one of them that were, and other players also, not just Americans, but, um, uh, who was it? Lisa Raymond, um, Nicole Arnold, Debbie Graham, Meredith McGrath. Uh, I mean, there were so many. If you read through the, the lists from back then from All-Americans, they all played. They all played college, which I we didn't know about that. It's only now, I think, in the last 20 years that, oh, that's really a good option. And I, I would wholeheartedly recommend that. To everyone because you learn so many skills that you need when you play pro you learn time management Uh, there is still the the aspect of team so you have that oh it's not just all on me you get the education absolutely Um, and now some of the better uh, colleges are actually allowing you to to play pro I mean to play pro tournaments in the summer for instance Diana uh, or Diana Schneider who played at North Carolina And I think now she has turned pro, she went to school and played at the Australian Open or last year at the, at the, um, at the U S open. So that tells you something about the level and she's now in the top 60. And I think on the men's side, it's the same thing. Um, and you have plenty of examples. So I think, I think that's an absolute valid route to go.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I remember like back in the day, I think what you were as you were alluding to, like as on the WT tour you felt like you had to be fifteen or six I mean, it was this Martina Hingis as well, like that came a yeah. bit later, but it's like you have to be this, you know, kid prodigy. Well on the men's tour it was more okay, it's okay that they, they yeah. are a little bit later because they need more physical strength and whatever. And now maybe that's changing a little bit as well because now you have like eighteen year olds that are super yeah. physical, like Alcaraz and whatever, and they break through really early and yeah. while on the WTA tour maybe it's a little bit later now than it was back then or at least the, the you know requirement yeah. to, to go pro right
1: yeah i mean but they they changed they, they adjusted the rules uh to that i mean i did have age restrictions i remember that the uh i don't know how many tournaments you could play like wta and tournaments maybe six events and then you have itf tournaments and whatever but um they they definitely increased the number like if you look at the uh the couple of kids that are now coming up, um, Mira Andreva, I'm not even yeah. sure. I think she's still 16. She still has restrictions. She, she can't play full schedule. Um, and I think it makes sense. I know that there's other uh, people that said like, well, you can get around it. Like Coco Gauff got around it basically a little bit because she played exhibitions at a very high level. Um but I'm still thinking that's, that's not introducing you full-time to the craziness of the tour. I think she was still able to, to have a little bit more of a base somewhere and not travel... Yeah, what was it? Literally, I, I want to say like 48 weeks out of the year. That's what it felt for me at least. Or 40, whatever. I mean, it was way too much. <laughs>
0: yeah and also i think i mean the the toll on the body like i i'm seeing that now if you follow the tours you know atp or wta like they some guys or girls they play every week it seems like they they there are no breaks you know even though they made some like decent money so they can take a break technically but it seems like they don't allow themselves to take a break whether it's the agent or themselves or or the coach but it's just like every week new location new regime more matches, more strain on the body, technically speaking, should be. Uh, yeah. And it's like becomes a bit senseless. And then you see the uh, crazy increase in injuries, you know, which uh, which statistically, I, I don't know 100% how much that is, but it, it must be a quite significant increase in injuries.
1: Yeah. And I mean, go a step before that. Um, I mean, I'm not quite at the top of the junior game anymore, but five, six years ago, I was still um, like one of the regional coaches for the USTA. Um, the the type of injuries that you used to see much much later when I played hip injuries knees people that were 22 23 or something now 11 12 year olds have hip issues knee issues because they already start so much in are I mean so much earlier and they're they're also so one-minded right they're only in tennis um, I played basketball until I was 14. I mean, not very good, but I still, you know, did something else. So just the the early specialization and then the intensity and the volume, we don't even see the numbers that drop out before they even ever make it somewhere on TV. Even look at... um, the the challengers or the 25s or something like before there so many people are are dropping out because of injuries and that's but I, I think a lot of it has to do people see this like oh you're gonna be a gazillionaire right you're gonna be like the netflix people and it's like mm, yeah no not so much
0: no no i think it's like having um i saw some speech by rafa at this academy where it's like he said told everyone pretty much flat out like most of you're not gonna make it and yeah. By that probably it's like ninety-five percent, you know, even like even at a, a top academy or a strong academy, it, it's you can't give I mean you don't wanna crush people's hopes, but yeah. there needs to be a realistic picture painted so you actually make some backup plans in your head at least, where you're not like a nutcase if you stop tennis and you have nothing. Yeah. You're like, you know, I'm a failure yeah. and I feel bad.
1: Well, you're gonna be the, <laughs> you're gonna become a tennis coach.
0: Which is not for everyone. Not
1: the worst thing, which is not the worst thing to be, but not every good player makes a good tennis coach. You have to have a little bit of a mind for that, too. But no, I agree. I mean, I find it always very, very interesting to see, you know, when they talk about the junior uh, Grand Slams, and you see, you go back to the, the, the draws 10, 12, 13 years ago, and you do see, of course, the, the players that make it. Right? You do see that uh, Roger Federer won the junior Wimbledon or Iga won the junior Wimbledon. But then you read like who they played against and you go, who? So this was a player, I mean, it kind of came to me that one time when Roger against, I don't know who it was, but it's like, I've never heard that name. So that kid was in the Wimbledon junior finals. And it's not a guarantee that you make it. And to me, that's stunning at that level, and that's exactly what you say. I mean, it's not many people make it. I mean, how many people are even, you know, have a ranking? I mean, that that by itself is is incredible. And I know that's gotten tougher since I played, because I think when, when I first got a ra- ranking, there were eight hundred women uh, ranked, and now I think now it's three thousand. Probably yeah. So they, yeah. So the, and on the men's side, I'm sure it's it's very similar. Um, But just the competition has gotten so much stronger, so it's, yeah, it's, as we said in the beginning, you have to be a little, little cuckoo. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's true. So how did you, when you, when your um, pro career ended and you, you, you know, you had your injury and everything, how did the transition to coaching? Was it easy, natural for you? I mean, you're very, like, you're pretty, you know, charismatic, open-minded, open speaker. So it mm-hmm. seems natural for you to create content. But then coaching can be another beast, right? So how, how did you take to that?
1: Um, my number one was I need to get an education. So I had finished high school through those back-in-the-day correspondence courses. It was all still paper, nothing online. That's how old I am. How oh, wow. Anyways... So I did graduate from high school in Germany and that gave me the opportunity to study here in the U.S. actually. And that's that's kind of how I got into and um, I got a scholarship as the assistant coach, um, coaching at Tulane first, coaching the women's team. And it felt very it felt that I had a really good access to the players right away because I could also talk about other things than just forehands and backhands. Because they do feel the same pressure. I mean, a lot of them were like, "Oh, my parents wanted me to have a scholarship and blah." And you're competing, and it's like, "Hey, I've been there." So it wasn't all about forehands and backhands. And I think that immediately kind of gave me a level of of trust, which I think they gave to me. I gave to them, um, and it was kind of it was kind of cool to help people along that way. And I think college also is a very uh, Different animal in that that you potentially have a player for four years, and you can really, really help develop them. And then I did transfer to Vanderbilt, and I think I was super uh, fortunate to to work with Jeff McDonald there. And I would have loved to have him as a coach because he really got the person. It wasn't about. I mean, we always kind of joked about it. When it's match time, it's ten percent about tennis. Uh, and forehands and backhands. And the 90% was like, how are your grades? How did practice go? How are you with your parents these days? What's with your friends? And, you know, how's life going? And you had to kind of manage the person and try to to find a very specific way for each one of the 10, 11, 12 players that we had on the tour to get information across. Um, and that that felt pretty natural to me. And I got the feedback from most all of the players, that that's super helpful to not just get in there and go like, hey, your forehand sucks, you need to do this and that and the other. It's like, hey, who are you as a person? And I think I carried that on into my my regular coaching now. And I, I think I coach a lot more how I would have liked to be coached because that was certainly not the way <laughs> we were
0: coached. No, I, I mean, that's great. Like, this, I mean, I think that's also the learning a lot of, I mean, smart people do it generally is that like you what would I have liked in this same situation? And if you were in that situation, obviously you have a clear understanding of what that is and then you can bring that. And I think for many people like the tennis is such a mental game. So having people feel good about themselves or, you know, feeling good about their tennis or whatever it is mentally, it seems so vital today, especially. Right?
1: Yeah. I mean, we always said, like with coach, we always said like a happy, you know, a happy player or a happy person is a happy player because then your mind is free. Like, I'm not worried about grades. I'm not worried about whatever it, whatever issues, college age, uh, people have, um, whether we thought they were relevant or important or not, doesn't matter. It's the perception of that player. So if you know, all the baggage that everybody has, they can leave that at the door when they step on the court, then, then we can talk tennis, right? Then they have the mental capacity and, um, one of the things that I really, really uh, learned from from Coach also, he always said, like, you have to keep learning. You have to keep learning. If you still teach the same way that you're in five years that you're teaching now, you suck as a coach. So if I'm kind of now, I mean, I can still say a lot of things. Well, this is, you know, really worked for me when I played. And, you know, because some of the fundamentals are still the same. But there's tennis has changed so much since I started. Since I stopped, uh, you have to continually keep learning. And I'm very fortunate that that is enjoyable for me. I, I like to, to learn.
0: What do you think is your, what would you say is your kind of main skill as a coach? Where, where do you think you shine the most when you have you know, whether it's a, a, like a strong junior or, or just like some complete club player.
1: Yeah. My sarcasm is unbeatable. <laughs> I think one of the things is I, I can put people at ease. Like I can I can establish that this is a a enjoyable environment. Nobody needs to be threatened um, because I do know people tell me it's like oh my god I was so intimidated you know getting on. And it's like really me. I mean, you know when I'm on coach I look like a on court I look like a beekeeper because I have all like okay. <laughs> some protection stuff. I look like a total idiot. Um, but I I think I get to a, a human level right away that I can communicate. Uh, here's some information, and I find a way to get that information across for different people. I think that's that's what I'm doing pretty well.
0: Yeah, good. Uh, you seem to be a good people reader, and I think the sarcasm helps. I'm a big fan of sarcasm, but it's also like having yeah. a sense of humor and self awareness helps, because otherwise, yeah. like some some coaches, you know, also famous coaches, they seem to love themselves a bit too much. Uh, that it's like
1: who are you alluding to? <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, no names mentioned, no, no names yes. forgotten, but it's like, no, but it's like that that's becomes a problem because if your ego gets in the way or anything, you, the results diminish. I. Yeah.
1: And that, that I think puts a huge strain on the coach, uh, player relationship. And I, I do know that with my personality and I joke a lot. And yes, I am sarcastic. Um, but I, I think I feel pretty well, like who can take it and who kind of reacts to that. Uh, and I'm also in the position, if somebody doesn't like it, then it's like, mm, too bad. You know, I'm not going to uh, completely change who I am because that's that's just, you know, how I am. I have enough people that, you know, enjoy this and kind of benefit from it. And I'm not as bad, but I'm definitely not the typical German coach.
0: No, I, I think so. I, I, yeah, I played with some German coaches and stuff. I know I would say that, too. They're yeah, a bit that didn't
1: up. talk too bad. You weren't as <laughs> bad as I thought you were going to be. I mean, yeah, literally, that's like, that's, some of our coaches were like, if you didn't get yelled at, that was, that was the best you could hope for. And, yeah, that, that oh, was not the most enjoyable thing.
0: That was a high five. Like, if, if they didn't say you were yeah. useless, that's good.
1: Yeah. If they didn't address you by name or if they didn't yell at you or I literally had a guy say to me, it's like, yeah, that didn't really suck today. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but as a German, you know how to take that a little bit more. But if I did that here and I jokingly do that here every now and then they all go like, really? Yeah, that's how we did it.
0: Yeah. yeah Americans are usually a bit more literal. So sar- sarcasm doesn't always work because they feel like yeah. they're, you know, what that just went over their heads or whatever because it's more which is just a different culture you know but it's in europe you can be a bit sarcastic uh and and it works but but in, in us it's different when it comes to like your, you know we talked about relationships coach player but when it comes to being on tour do you still keep in touch with players you you became friends with or or how does your tour life feature into your current life
1: i still every now and then talk to to some players but not necessarily very highly ranked players um, but we grew up together one of my best friends at home actually is one of my childhood uh, biggest nemesis uh, we hated each other and now we're best friends and I we both don't know why um, she dropped out fairly soon uh, because and she was at at a very high German level um, but she said like this is the, it's not for me absolutely not for me um, on tour I know it it's very different or it sounds like it's very different, that there are some players that have really great relationships and and are really good friends. Uh, I didn't have many friends just for the fact that I did not just want to talk about tennis. Like that, to me, it it was such a bubble. It's like, I want to be focused on tennis when I'm on court, when I talk to my coach, but after that, I don't want to talk about tennis or shopping. Um, and that, I know I'm, this sounds a little stereotyping people, but it'd it be, um, uh, the intellectual level was not necessarily the highest where I felt like, okay, this is really who I want to be spending my time with. Uh, you know, nobody was reading papers and I was just like, what do you people do all day? Um, they watch TV and I was like, no, not, not so much. Um, I did get along with with a lot of people, and I guess when we trained or something, like I never had issues like finding practice partners or something, or went to dinner a, a bunch of times. But it's like uh, that's that's about it. That that's all I want to want to do. But now, in retrospect, I did talk to quite a bunch of players who were at the same uh, same time, and they said exactly the same thing. It's like it was they don't stay in touch a whole lot with other players because their outside lives are more important now because you've done this, this is it, move on.
0: Yeah, and I think I think I see that when I travel to some events like that players usually either are they with their team and now you have teams, okay, so it's that also changes things but I, I thought there would be more like bantering between players but it seems like it's a little bit, you know, the competitive aspect of it kind of Kills that possibility yeah. even of being proper friends, or actually, like we're at the same city, you know, 10 times a year or more, but it's yeah. still like you're not really hanging out or you're not able to hang out, so it becomes a kind of weird friendship as well.
1: Yeah, and I think sometimes that's also a it's fostered by the media, also a little bit, but it's also, I think, fostered a little bit by the coaches. I know that some of my coaches said, like, you can't be hanging out with them, uh, you know, because you're gonna play them. Because I, as a kid, I was. tennis for me was like my best friends like I grew up in my club and we had really good players and those were all my best friends so for me it was always like even when we in the the state federation those were really my best buddies and I would want to hang out with them and we did much to the chagrin of our coaches sometimes (laughs) Um, but you know then once you get at, at the level where it's about prize money and it's about your livelihood and that's yeah, it could be reflecting on your coach also, right? Because it's their livelihood also. And if you kind of muck around there and you, I don't know what you're doing then when you hang out with other people, that could take away from your concentration or you're not professional enough or whatever. Um, So it it, it is just hard. I mean, it's just a really weird, weird lifestyle, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is. And it's like, it, it strikes me the more I've been around, like just traveling and with, you know, around the tournaments, and you, you you're in the player rooms or player lounges, restaurants, and it's like it's such a strange atmosphere, atmosphere. sometimes. It's yes. like everybody's in the same room, but nobody's talking. You know, is that yeah. t- there's tension in there even though there's no matches going on, right?
1: Yeah, I agree. And yeah, that was definitely when I started. Uh, that was intimidating out of the wazoo. Uh, my my first bigger tournament where I experienced that was in Filderstadt. Uh, remember where you could win the Porsche now it's in Stuttgart Um, but you and it's a it was a very intimate setting it was at like some kind of smaller venue now it's a bigger uh, venue and everything but it was literally like a regular clubhouse basically like any kind of little bigger club and there's Gabriella Sabatini and there's Jennifer Capriati and then there's Martina Navratilova and you're coming in there as a 16 year old and like don't mind me I'm hi (laughs) So that that was, yeah, to get used to that, and then I agree, it was all, everybody is in their own little bubble there.
0: Yeah, and also there must be an intimidation factor. Like if there's some legend, and then you're going to maybe, you are you know, you're drawn against them. Like how does that, like, you know, did you play any real legends where you felt like, oh no, this is going to be bad, just before you even went to the court. Like there's hard <laughs> oh, to be just yeah. here.
1: Plenty of times. Um, I mean the first, and that was actually at, at Filderstadt. I, I had a great experience actually. I, I played Qualies and qualified, and had to play Martina Navratilova, number one in the world at that, and she had like 15 Porsches already. Um, so we're in the waiting area, and I, I was shaking. I was literally shaking, I couldn't breathe. I was just the nerve wrecking, uh, yeah, it was it was horrible. And she comes over to me and says like, hey, you know, I watched you play and you're you're doing great. Just take a couple of deep breaths. You know, we're going to have fun out there. It's going to be great. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Who? What? And I it was and it did work. I mean, I played reasonably well um, and that was that was amazing. I thought that was absolutely yeah, I don't know why she did it, but I thought it was super, super nice. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I played Martina Hingis once or twi- twice. And, you know, you always talk about you have to believe that you can win. Maybe that's where I was a little too introspective or it's like, come on. I mean, she has to, like, tie a hand behind her back for me to win. So you have to be a realistic. I mean, there was not... I had no chance, basically, and that I knew that before I went out on the court, to be honest. I mean, then it's basically just trying to not look like a total idiot. Um, and I managed to, I think, do reasonably well. But, yeah, I mean, there were a couple of matches where I was like, oh, my God. But now I can laugh at it, but back then it was not quite as enjoyable.
0: <laughs> I can imagine that. Like, yeah, it can be terrifying. Did you have any, like specific highlights in your career that you think about even today that you're like, okay, this was like one of the best moments of my tennis career.
1: Um, yeah, I think Indian Wells in 1998. Uh, uh, I ended up playing uh, Martina Hingis and I did, did well. The, the score didn't necessarily reflect it. I know that always is a weird thing to say, but I beat two ranked players, uh, Brenda Schultz-McCarthy, who I think at that time was nine in the world, and did really, really well, and then somebody else, um, that was the biggest one. And I think then the, the proudest match, or the match that I'm the proudest, was probably at the French Open, uh, winning against Helena Sukova. Um And I think she was top 10 at the time, uh, 11-9 or something, or 12-10, 11-9, I think, 11-9, in the, in the third, when they still had the open sets, and that was something... That was one of the matches, I said that earlier, where I felt like I pushed myself and I I pushed myself through adversity. So that's something that I was really, really proud of. So that's a really great memory. And then I have to say it was all Bundesliga. Like it was all team tennis at home because that those were my friends. I mean, our team was not like bought together. I mean, those were all kids that grew up there and got good together and that was a group of friends and that that was amazing that was really really uh, I mean that was definitely a highlight of my my career
0: how important do you think team tennis is? Because sometimes I feel like that's a, one thing that a lot of players miss, like even guys like Curios or, or whatever, they, they feel like they can't really shine in the single format, like they too much pressure, maybe mental anxiety, whatever. But when they play as a team in doubles or for your country or whatever, uh, it seems to be relieving them and being able to play more you know, freely for something else than themselves. Uh, how yeah. important is team tennis and should it be more important?
1: I think it's I mean, to me, it was hugely important um, because I could kind of take the pressure off me a little bit on this. At the same time, it was an extra motivation because it's like, hey, I'm also playing for them. But it was the good kind. I mean, to me, it felt like good kind of pressure, Um, especially when in, you know, in a singles tournament, you're on court fifty nine and it's raining and it's crap. And, you know, you're five two down and you're going, okay, I might as well just like bag it. now you're looking out and you're seeing your, your teammates. It's like, oh, no, uh, uh-uh. uh, you, you gotta, you gotta bust your butt here. Um, I think it's, it's good entertainment. Am I kind of sometimes thinking it's too much entertainment? Yeah, but I think, uh, FedCub or Billie Jean King Cup now, uh, Davis Cup, uh, absolute fantastic, uh, opportunities for players and I think also for fans because you do see a little bit of a different dynamic and I'm I'm not very happy with the the Davis Cup format now it's the in one it's like nobody cares anymore as a kid I was the ball, uh, ball kid once or twice wow. in Frankfurt actually and when I was like nine ten or whatever and just the atmosphere there was just amazing I mean that was when Boris was you know at the top of his career and um uh, michael stich and uh, those four matches where you're like wow and you don't have that anymore with that new format it's like nobody cares i don't care anymore maybe some yeah, i think
0: people. that that's the the issue it's like it you, you change something because if you look at the grand slams like they, they are historical tournaments that have been the same pretty much you know for so long that it creates like a, a huge tradition and people love traditions right yeah. And you had the same with Davis cup, like, okay, you have that, like very decisive doubles, you know, five sets was, was dramatic in that sense. Um, and and it had huge tradition. And then when you change it, it, that just evaporates and you can't like, you you have to rebuild, you can't use the brand name to sell a new product. You know, that's, that's the weird thing.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it's, I mean, yeah, think back to the, the, the matches, uh, Germany against Sweden, I mean, we. Stayed up all night however long it took. Right? Becker backer against Wielander in, in Munich or whenever that was. I mean those were matches that was like wow. But yeah, now they're playing in I don't know where and nah. Yeah, not I I agree. I mean they should have probably rebranded it somehow, but it's definitely not what it used to be.
0: No, exactly. I think there's always ways to do things differently, but but it's as a when you take something that it's so you know traditional and and so ingrained, you have to yeah. treat you know treat it with a lot of care. And I think that's yeah. maybe what where they fail. I think I think they did just like okay, let's just fix this with some money and we you know hope for the best. And that, that's that's yeah. a shame because then you can't get and it back.
1: Yeah, <laughs> backfired slightly. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. So coaching life now um, and then going to content. Do you want to be doing more content? Or you want to be, you know, you find a a balance there? Or do you have another career in the, you know, you want to go on TV, commentate, or where do you see yourself?
1: I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to doing commentary if they can, you know, uh, deal with a sarcastic German. Uh, I think that that ship has sailed because I didn't make enough connections when I played. Um, that That was maybe one of the downsides of me being actually fairly introverted. I know I don't come across necessarily that way, but I, you know, I didn't do the political side well enough. I didn't kind of get the the connections that would have enabled me to kind of get into that side. Also, it would mean more traveling, but no, I think that I want to find a balance where I can be on court six, seven, eight hours a week and really enjoy that. And then the content creation is, is really uh, interesting for me. It's also, it's fun. Um, I think the mental skills things is something that I, the mental skills coaching, I'm working on an online course. Um, So those are still avenues, I think, that I haven't even looked at a whole lot, to be honest, because that's definitely one thing that not a whole lot of people can offer because, yeah, they don't necessarily have the training. I do have the uh, training and also the experience to back it up. I can tell people, you know, well, yeah, you feel that way because I felt that way. Um, at least in tennis. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's kind of getting a, maybe a little bit more in a, into a mell- mellower stage of, of my life. I've done the, yeah, working since I was 16 and I'm, yeah, maybe I'll go towards retirement a little bit more.
0: Now, finding a good balance of, of hikes and tennis and some uh, some content, I think yeah. you never know what happens. That, that's the fun thing, especially now when everything's moving so fast. But I think yeah. knowing how to edit videos is always handy, and and being in, in tennis is an interesting way. I mean, you mentioned it as well. I think like if you don't network, obviously that that's a problem. You you have to play the politician a little bit, you know. And and then other and yeah. if you're you know are saying something and you, some people are easily hurt, which is silly, but it's how it is, you know. So. Yeah, um, you have to play what that game What's The delete as
1: well. button is for. <laughs> yeah,
0: <exactly. laughs> That's good when you edit. It's good that you can have edit out stuff if you want. It always helps.
1: That too. Yes, I I got really good at that. Um, especially if I'm doing lessons that I show or something, because I do have sometimes uh, what is it uh, PG thirteen or R rated commentary when I coach. Um, so yeah, I was got to be a little more careful on that side.
0: Yeah, you don't want any strikes from YouTube. I, they they are easy with the strikes. I, I've heard. I, I haven't received any, thankfully. Yeah. But it's you know you never know.
1: But you learn, and I mean, it's I I still enjoy it, and I think there's so many more things that I can do with it that I'm not too worried that I don't you know spend as much time on the court anymore.
0: How is the situation with pickleball in Denver? Is it like still like a growing like the plague, or is it? Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't want to bother you too much with this topic, but I had to ask. <laughs>
1: let me put it this way. I don't, I don't dislike pickleball, the sport. I think, I mean, I played it a couple of times and it is fun when you play with people that, you know, are you level and it's a fun thing, but it's, I mean, I, I looked at, I uh, looked at the tennis channel yesterday or a couple of days ago. Cause I was like, okay, I have an hour of free time and you know, why not check out what's, what's on. And then there's pickleball in there. And then I literally see this is, and there is a pro tournament, actually, in Denver at the place that I used to coach, Um, and that was a little bitter with how they made the transition, and the infrastructure wasn't the way that it should be to add as many pickleball courts, whatever it was, but you literally see a dude with a beer belly playing something, and that's a pro, and to me, that doesn't gel. It's like, that's not... I'll just leave it at that, I think. So I think it's a phenomenal sport for, uh, getting people engaged, getting people exercising. Um, it has a very low entry level. Basically everybody can play it. I think for that, it's great. But I think I am a little bit with Martina Navratilova. If you, if you like it so much, build your own courts, because yeah, 100%. we're losing a lot of tennis courts that way. And it cuts into my livelihood. It cuts into a lot of tennis coaches. Um, and I do think it's yeah, for the, the the level of where you can call yourself a pro. <laughs> hm. I'll leave it at that. Next topic. Yeah, I
0: think it's good. Good. Politically correct there. That was perfect. Excellent. Uh, no, but it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I'm, I'm the, the same opinion. I'm like, I have nothing against it because people exercise, especially if you have a beer belly, it makes sense to exercise. Yeah. Uh, maybe uh-huh. not go pro. But uh, it's it's a problem when it kind of affects other sports. You know, it's like, so, you know, yeah. do your own thing. And I, I do see transition into tennis from both paddle, which is big in Europe, and yeah. pickleball. So so there is a point there. But don't draw extra lines on my tennis courts, please. This would be my opinion. Yeah. I don't like these build extra build your lines. your own
1: or do them, um, do, throw down lines or... I mean, honestly, it's like you can play it on the street here. My, my streets are nice enough that and I've done it. I mean, during lockdown, we, we played pickleball on the street here or in the parking lot across the street um, or in the park there. But yeah, don't don't claim that the, the courts that are being taken over by pickleball are not used by tennis because it's a different population. It's a different demographic. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I, mean, I agree. I have to ask you this because uh, I have a lot of racket nerds uh, listening, uh, probably, or at least watching the content generally. Yeah. Um, so, do you have a lot of questions about gear? I mean, I think there's an over obsession with gear because you can hopefully buy away your problem. So people want to yeah. buy a racket that hits the ball for them, so they don't have to do it themselves. Yeah. Uh, and you know, uh, and that's become like a thing that people just over emphasize the, the gear.
1: Analyze. Yeah.
0: Do you, have you seen that as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I. People ask me questions that are so detailed that I'm like, I dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. I know which racket doesn't hurt my arm. I know which strings don't hurt my arm. I know nothing about poly gut main, I mean, I sort of have a clue, but I couldn't I, I definitely don't have enough knowledge about it to recommend very very detailed things. Um, and I, I mean, when I played, absolutely, because that was one of the things that you could control and anything that you can control, you to my mind should control when you play. But exactly what you were saying is like the racket's not going to hit for you. Like your racket is not for most of the players that, that ask me these type of questions. Like the racket is not your problem. It's there's other things that are more important for you to work on. Um, and or fix or invest in or whatever you want to call it then the racket and the strings. They can help, yeah, but if you have terrible technique, it doesn't matter what racket you have.
0: And now I have yeah. to ask a follow-up question. Like, so when you played pro, what racket and string did you use and what do you use now?
1: Um, I uh, was always a Wilson girl, uh, the Wilson Pro staff. And uh, the strings were ISO Speed. Um, I think it was an Austrian company. Yep uh now i'm with yonix and it's the yonix i well i'm actually kind of going back and forth between three rackets now because i can't make up my mind um the v pro uh the e zone and then the regular v the the red one and now they're coming out with a new one and it's like, i don't know uh and then the yonix uh Rexis comfort that's i mean that combination either one of those three rackets with that type of string seems to be the best for my arm And that's, that's all I care about these days.
0: So so you've had arm problems over the last couple of years or?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, my shoulder was really the reason I had four surgeries and now every now and then I do have tennis elbow, although it's not my technique, hopefully. I'm claiming I'm getting old, so I'll, I'll go with that. But yeah, that's, that's all I care about these days. I'm not like, I don't need another five miles on my forehand. I need control and I need to be able to basically not look or think about my own stro- strokes because I focus on my client.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's very sensible. You have a one-handed backhand. Um, what do you think of the, and it's a it's very, na- very nice one, so start there. What do you think of the the future of the one-handed backhand in the game? Like, I mean, on the women's side, it's not very popular. There are some very beautiful ones. I think Diane Perry is one of them. Yep. Uh, but, and henin Hardan was one of my favorite players to watch. Uh, yeah. But it's like, even on the men's side now, it's like guys like Alcaraz kicking up balls. Denis Shapovaly has to jump and hit like yeah. impossible shots. Uh, what do you think of its future?
1: We'll probably always see a few players do it because they are so talented that they can, that they can do it. On the men's side, probably a little bit more. Um, because I honestly have to say that guys are given more freedom to choose what they want. On women, I mean, on the girls' side, it's like, oh, you're too weak. Uh, So you start with a two-hander and to an extent it makes you successful quicker. And I'm literally going with like little kids, five, six or whatever. Um, We're not talking successful like winning tournaments or something. Just making contact with the ball. That's what I'm going for. And it's easier uh, to replicate it more consistently with less aberrations. So that's what they then end up sticking with. Most of the players that I know have a one-hander. They actually started with two. I mean, I don't know about uh, Tsitsipas, for instance, but Dominic Team had a two-hander. I had a two-hander until I was 12 or 11. So it definitely was easier in the beginning, especially when you're not as strong. And it doesn't matter whether you're a boy or a girl, you're not very strong at age 9, 10, 11. So a two-hander will enable you to be more successful, just keeping the ball in play, or then also... Being more powerful so I think there will always be some but I don't think we'll ever go back to teaching just the one-hander that's that's done I mean I would be super happy if we please start teaching the slice again a little bit more (laughs) but that's that's the same kind of things like well you don't see world class players slicing all the time it's like yeah but have you seen people who can slice how successful they are Ash Barty
0: Yeah, Ons uh, has a good slice as well, and yeah. you know, even Andrew, on the men's side you have guys like Dan Evans who uses the slice, yeah. so I would say 90% and, and wins good matches, you know?
1: Yeah. So that's, I mean, on the men's side it always feels that they can at least deal with the slice, on the women's side not, because it is that stupid sexist stereotype like you don't need a slice. And it's, it, the slice is difficult to teach. Absolutely, it's very frustrating to teach for the coach and for the player because it takes a long time. So why would I invest as much time in a shot that I hit maybe every 20th, or maybe never in a match, uh, if I can just tee off with two hands? Well, yeah, but that's going to stay, That that's going to make you very limited. And if you are the person who can deliberately use the slice, hello, Ernst Jabor or Marketa von Drusova, which thankfully. You know, now you have two players at the top of the game winning big titles uh, that have that style. So I think that's that's coming, hopefully coming back. Or Karolina Mukova. I mean, that's a beautiful game. Absolutely stunningly beautiful game.
0: Yeah, variation is, is the beauty of tennis, I think. So you, the more you can teach variation, I think that's also where the game hopefully is heading and not like stereotypical yeah. stuff, but actually like the more variation you can bring to the game, you have more options, more weapons, then you, you're going to win. So hopefully that's yeah. the, the case. I want yeah. to thank you a lot. I know you're a busy, busy woman. So a big thanks that we managed to get this set after a few reschedules because of, of different time zones and what, whatnot, uh, being very good. Like you're an excellent speaker, very interesting to listen to and refreshingly, refreshingly honest as well. I like that.
1: You don't have to bleep anything out. I, I was <laughs> under control. You don't have to go beep.
0: There will be bleeps. Excellent. Well, well, you have a nice day now and uh, we keep in touch, okay?
1: All right. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day.